Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. English holly certainly looks festive this time of year with its dark, spiky leaves and bright red berries. But as recently reported in High Country News, the invasive plant poses a significant threat to Pacific Northwest forests. Much like English ivy, English holly is shade-tolerant, meaning it can thrive in the dense forests of western Washington and Oregon, out-competing and overtaking native species. David Stokes is a professor emeritus of ecology and conservation biology at the University of Washington, Bothell. He has studied the spread of holly, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. How did English holly, which is native to Europe and North Africa, get here? Well, uh, as is the case with a lot of non-native species, um, especially attractive ornamental plants, uh, it was brought intentionally in the uh, the mid-1800s. for horticultural reasons. It was, as you said, it was a very attractive plant, probably reminded people of home back in Europe. And uh, so, yeah, it was brought out in the mid-1800s mid, uh, purposely. And was the idea in general that let's just plant this to have it around for our own, you know, as a hedge on our property or let's grow it commercially? Yeah, I can't speak to the, you know, whoever brought it out for the very first time, but relatively quickly, um, an industry developed around the plant. And um, by the mid-1900s, there was a a multi-million dollar uh, business centered on holly. And and I think in Washington, Oregon, there were about 50 commercial growers by then. Hmm. When did people first start to notice that it was spreading in an unhealthy way? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, land managers, uh, people who are managing parks and forest lands in general, uh, have been noticing this for several decades. But there was no um, there was no record of it in the scientific literature. Nobody had really examined it, um, and so there was a lot of anecdotal information that holly was invasive, but no real scientific proof. When did you decide were, to, to, to study it? Yeah, I, well, I, I decided to study it in uh, shortly after 2006 when I came back, back to the Northwest. from a, I had a position in California, but I came back to the Northwest in 2006. And as I was walking around in the woods, I started noticing holly in places where, uh, you know, well, it's not native. You wouldn't expect to see it. And just it really started as a kind of a question, like what's going on here? Is this thing, is this thing spreading, or or, or what, and at what rate? And uh, that's really the the genesis of my interest. I also was looking for a project that I could involve students in in field research, and this is sort of a perfect project for that. Where did you decide to focus for that research? Well, we were since the the overall interest was what's what's the state of the invasion in, in, in Washington? We were looking for a fairly typical location. Um, and, and the real um, question was, is it, is it invading forests? So we wanted a, a, a site that was typical for us, 
where we knew that Holly did exist. And the, the place that we settled on was St. Edward State Park, which is a, a really beautiful, largely intact forest land in the greater Seattle area, surrounded by um, suburban development. So it's sort of a typical forest, typical of all of Western Oregon and Washington, but um, in a sort of an urban or suburban context. And uh, it's got a, a distribution of species that are pretty typical. If you looked at the forest, you'd think, well, that just looks like a really healthy forest. You wouldn't have even really noticed the holly until you started looking at it. But that's what we did. We we started looking closely, and there was quite a bit of holly there. You say looking closely. Can you describe um, what you and your students actually did? Yeah, so we took a really straightforward approach. We basically uh, identified an area about 20 acres in size, which is pretty large for a field ecology survey of this kind. And we walked every square meter of that 20 acres. It took two years to do this. Our field season was only in the winter because that's when holly is most visible. And we basically looked for every individual that we could find. And whether it was, you know, one inch tall or, or 50 feet tall. And for each individual, we, well, we, we pulled the, the, the plants that we could pull we cut down an herbicide of the stumps of the plants that were too big to, to pull. And we took a sample of each one at ground level. So we could count the rings, the annual rings that the tree put on and, um, and determine when, when it established. And we also mapped all of those, uh, all of those sites with GPS. Hmm. And so we were, at the end, we were able to assemble a database of all of the holly that existed on that 20 acre plot and how, you know, when the various individuals became established. And the end goal being to be able to characterize the history of the invasion. And what did you find when, when you graphed it with, you know, the, the oldest one that you could find and then the, the increase in population over time? What did it look like? Yeah, so this, this was what was really interesting. Um, like I said, if you just looked at the forest, if you just went out in the forest, you would hardly notice holly. You wouldn't, it's just not that conspicuous when it's at that density. But what we found was that, first of all, the oldest tree we found in our study area was established in 1966. And then there was a period of very slow establishment for the next 15 years or so. Um, and then the um, rate of establishment just took off in an exponential uh, curve and just really rapid increase in the numbers of of trees, in the size of those trees, and the amount of canopy there was, um, and so that uh, yeah, we had we got some very alarming projections of what that density would look like, even in as, in as little as as ten years. We found that the population was doubling approximately every six years. Um, so it's uh, it was it was fairly alarming, actually, the rate of increase that we discovered. How do you explain that? I mean, what made Holly after a sort of, I guess, that the establishment time when that first tree was was getting going? How do you explain the really significant spread after that? Well, uh, first of all, this 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 pattern of of a lag time is very typical of a lot of invasive species. They don't seem to really take off right away. They, they sit there for a while, just 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 hanging on. Um, that could be because of uh, 
just an insufficient density of individuals. Could be pollen limitation. Holly is a um, dioecious tree, meaning it has separate sexes, so you need male and female trees to um, grow the population. So that could be could be a number of reasons why it wouldn't take off right away. Um, but once it once it reaches that critical mass, uh, it was apparently really well adapted to these conditions. Certainly didn't have any competition from other holly because there was no holly there to begin with. Um, it appears to do really well in our climate, which is similar to uh, where it um, exists in Europe uh, and North Africa. Um, and basically, it just didn't have any any limitations. No, no natural predators. No competition from other similar plants. And so it was really in an unrestrained condition and may still be. We don't know how dense it can get um, uh, ultimately. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about holly, which may sound festive, especially this time of year, but is an invasive species in the Northwest. We're talking with David Stokes, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Conservation Biology at University of Washington at Bothell. Um, you noted just now that you're not sure how how dense it can be, but you were a part of a team that visited a forest around Lake Young's, a reservoir that provides drinking water to the Seattle area. Can you describe the density of holly there? Yeah, so that's a that's maybe a, a, a little uh, window into what the future could be for other locations where holly is invaded. Uh, it's a place. It's a it's a um, a place in the uh, uh, reservoir system for the city of Seattle, and it's been off limits to people, but somehow holly got established there, and it's been growing along un, undisturbed for for at least several decades. And what you see when you go out there is a Douglas fir forest overstory, um, but underneath that, there's a 15 to 30 foot high uh, growth of holly. Um, really thick, a thick, really call it a thicket, um, with very little of anything else growing underneath that. So it's the, the whole native understory in some areas of Lake Young's has been replaced by this uh, tangle of, of holly, sort of prickly, uh, sort of a jungle of prickly uh, leaves and, and dense crisscross uh, branches. You noted that there are, there are still dug for above that, older, larger trees. But do you imagine that dug for saplings could take hold, find enough water or sunlight to actually become new trees given the understory of holly? Now, that, that's one of the really concerning things about this the situation. It's not simply an aesthetic question or a conservation question. It's also, also an economic question. Uh, issue. Uh, I, we did not see any young Douglas firs coming up underneath this holly. It's unlikely that Douglas fir would establish underneath uh, a canopy. Douglas fir doesn't really like to establish under any kind of canopy, but it would almost certainly not come up under holly. And so there is a potential for uh, large economic um, damage uh, from this invasion. When you consider that this is not just happening at these little parks where where I and other researchers have happened to see it, it's happening all across the Northwest. And there's a, a um, forest service uh, researcher, Andrew Gray, who's looked, who's done surveys over large areas of, of federal land in Oregon 
in Washington and found very similar rates of increase uh, in those areas as well, similar to what we found. So the potential uh, ultimately could be a reduced, a significantly reduced um, timber harvest. Uh, and this is a sort of a long, long way out, but it is a potential endpoint for this sort of uh, phenomenon. What are the challenges to removing holly? <laughs> well, it is a tough customer. I'll tell you that. Um, as I said, you can normally pull up small ones, and probably many of your listeners have had to do that in their gardens because it tends to spread everywhere. Uh, so if there's if the if the plants are small, you can you can pull them up. But once they get to be uh, two, three, four inch diameter at the base, uh, then they're almost impossible to pull up, at least with manual means. Um, and at that point, you have to switch to uh, herbicide. Uh, Amazapur is the is the is the favored uh, herbicide for killing tree. And and the most efficient way to do that is to use this use an injector where you inject little um, capsules of imazapur into the base of the of the trunk. Um, but you, you know you put several um, shells into each one. It's a it's a very labor intensive process. And that's another problem with this with this uh, invasion is it's not an easy thing to stop. Um, it's a it, it, it's it's widespread and each tree requires individual treatment. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge. Compared to something like Scotch broom or English ivy, which I mentioned at the beginning, holly grows relatively slowly. Does that make it harder to get the public to pay attention to it? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that that's it's 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 easy to see um, invasions of of things that are you know happen very rapidly. Um, but for a lot of um, of uh, forest invaders, and English holly is a great example, um, the invasion is, is happening too slowly for humans to really easily, uh, immediately understand. Um, but when you figure that, so, you know, a, a holly forest isn't going to really appear for several decades, um, but several decades is really rapidly uh, changing uh, when you consider the, the the time scale of the forest, that is, an old growth forest takes several hundred years to develop. So, something changing the forest over a matter of a few decades is is really rapid rapid uh, in ecological terms. But as you say, uh, for people can't see that happening. Um, that's that that makes it hard to get attention. And that was one of the reasons why we in our in our the paper we produced we showed the data in that in the way that you could see the time scale of the of the invasion and you can see the exponential shape of the curve um, hopefully getting the attention of at least the readers of that paper that that this is changing really fast and exponential growth is by its nature is sort of takes people by surprise so uh, yeah it's a challenge uh, I will say the managers of St Edward Park at least um, were very receptive, and when they when they when they saw our results, they actually um, applied for and got uh, support from the agency to um, begin holly control efforts. And they've done they've done quite a bit. They haven't been able to get rid of the plant, but they've done quite a bit of control over the past few years. 
Efforts to get holly added to the list of noxious weeds in Washington state have been blocked by a member of the Washington State Noxious Weed Control Board who is himself a holly farmer, an obvious vested interest there. What would it have meant to have it added? Well, um, I think it, it wouldn't, first of all, it wouldn't solve the problem by itself. Uh, clearly, that's just words on a page, right, when, when, a, when something is listed. However, it does have a practical effect, several practical effects. One is, um, as you alluded to earlier, it makes it just more, uh, it's more, it's higher in the public mind uh, that this is a plant maybe to avoid. If you're thinking about putting a plant um, in your yard, you're less likely to choose something that's uh, listed as a noxious weed. Um, it also offers more avenues of control by the state who could um, uh, make recommendations or guidelines about what nurseries could could sell uh, to customers. Uh, and, and third, it makes it a lot easier to get funding to control something if it's listed uh, as noxious weed than if it is not. So there, there's, it's not a panacea, but it, it would have a positive effect. David Stokes, thanks very much. Thank you. David Stokes is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Conservation Biology at University of Washington, Bothell. He joined us to talk about invasive English holly. Finally today, our managing producer, Shiraz Sadiq, joins us to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Shiraz. Hey, Dave. Last week, we looked at the growing school attendance problem across the state. Joel Hoffman asked, how much of it is bad school record keeping? My son's PPS middle school keeps informing us he's chronically absent, but he hasn't missed a day. Yes, I'm sure. They marked all the sixth graders absent every day for outdoor school and haven't fixed it. Nancy Willard wrote, There is a clear association between school absences and being bullied. When I was being bullied in junior high school, I missed over 30 days. Native American students are very frequently bullied. Of concern is that the issue of bullying was not mentioned by your guests. Last week, we looked into the shortage of EMTs and paramedics in Multnomah County. Corey Reckon Morton wrote, Maybe if AMR would not have bought up every ambulance company in the U.S., I'd have pity for them. They are for-profit-only company versus the local companies like Buck Medical. Jake Whitney said, Give me a break. They're leaving because pay is low on the front line. The risks and trauma they deal with is perhaps more in scope, but that's a part of the gig. Pay your people, AMR. Same story as Tacoma, where they lost their contract for being negligent. We also heard this voicemail. Hello, this is Patrick, and I'm calling from southeast Portland. Uh, I was an EMT right out of high school uh, until I rode a volunteer part of my training program uh, to become a paramedic and realized that all of the paramedics were making less money than the school teacher. And the demands upon them are quite great. Um, I found this ineffective for my life. Thank you. Good day. Brad Sattler emailed this. I have a unique perspective on the problem discussed today, as I have been a paramedic for 24 years and operated in flight, fixed wing, and operations. I'm also an electrician, and the average electrician makes $46 an hour. Let's consider this. I make $46 an hour average dealing with much easier work and situations. 
Brad went on, the problem is money. EMS needs higher pay. AMR won't say this. But the money argument actually works in their favor, as their pay has to be balanced with reimbursement. As someone who has done administration, the money is difficult to balance with what pay needs to become. Finally, we asked our listeners about their drinking habits and how they've changed, especially after the pandemic. Here are a few voicemails we heard. Hi, Dave. My name is Will, and I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I suffered from alcoholism for a number of years and sought treatment uh, at the end of 2019 and left treatment uh, February of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I found staying sober during the pandemic a actually interesting advantage because so many people were going through a major change with me, even if it wasn't precisely the same change. Um, I was very alone when I was drinking. And I think a lot of people felt very alone during the pandemic. Hi, this is Elle Christensen from Oregon City, Oregon. Um, During the pandemic, we actually, personally, I ended up drinking less. I found that since the social situations dwindled during the the COVID pandemic, um, I was in situations where I would drink alcohol less often. Um, I prefer to drink socially. And so since I was just at home with me and my cat and my husband, um, I didn't find that I felt like I wanted to drink alcohol. I did find a lot of very exciting mocktails or other fun things to drink or to eat or to do as experiences that seemed to be a really good alternative. Dave, it's Jeff Cook from Portland. I'm drinking less than I used to drink because it does me no good. I started drinking heavily after shingles erupted in my life. And that was eight years ago. But the drink only solved the part of the problem. I've discovered other ways to deal with it. And now, thankfully, I am no longer drinking like I used to. I am very grateful to friends found their way to tell me that I was out of control. We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our email address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. And our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Raz. You're welcome, Dave. Tomorrow on the show, the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries has failed to collect nearly $5 million in wage theft claims from employers since 2015. That's according to a new analysis from Investigate West. They also found that employers in industries with more low-wage and undocumented workers, like construction and agriculture, left more wages and penalties unpaid. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. Thank you.